Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own Discord channel now where there's chat and things on it. There's Ko-Fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like. There's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are. And of course, just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year. So thank you once again. I'm going to stop waffling. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. Now, we always say that we're very excited by the guests that we have on, but today the wonderful Charlotte Whites and I are exceedingly excited because every once in a while, a book arrives just at the right moment in time. And for Charlie and I, this one has energized, blown our minds away, and made us rather cross all in the same go. So, Charlie, who do we have with us today? Oh, we're, we've got a real coup today. We're very lucky to have Sarah Churchwell with us. She's Professor of American Literature at the School of Advanced Study, University of London, and more importantly, she's the author of The Wrath to Come, The Lies America Tells and Gone with the Wind. We are so happy to have you here, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So this is a really interesting book because it is about Gone with the Wind, the book and the film, but you open somewhere very different. You open at the 6th of January, 2021. So where were you when the Capitol was stormed and you saw the Confederate battle flag flying in the Capitol for the first time? I was, in, I was at home in London and I was preparing to celebrate the fact that the state of Georgia had just elected its first black and its first Jewish senator in a very tight race, which gave Democrats control of Congress, not just of the Senate, but of Congress, which after the extended uh, contest over whether Biden was going to, to um, well, he had won the presidency, but obviously Trump was fighting it and his supporters were fighting it. So as people will remember, casting your mind back to, to you know, it feels like 
eons ago. So much <laughs> has happened since then. But it was actually really, really important. And we were all on a knife edge about whether Biden would have a Congress that would enable him to um, enact any legislation or whether Mitch McConnell would still be running things, in which case it was all kind of over. Anyway, it was a big mm -hmm. deal. First Jewish, first black senator ever voted in from the deep south state of Georgia and all kinds of symbolism around it. The um, Reverend Warnock, the um, black senator, uh, is the pastor of the same church that Martin Luther King was running when he was assassinated. So all of these kinds of symbolic continuities, really, really important moment. So I thought that's what I was going to be celebrating. And instead, like the rest of the world, I watched in horror as a, as a mob rampaged the Capitol and people died. And it was absolute mayhem, as I don't have to tell anyone. I was about a year into writing this book at that point. I was kind of two, three years into thinking about it, a year into serious, two years into serious researching and working on it and a year into mm -hmm. writing it. And, um, and I kind of called my editor the next day and said, I'm rewriting the opening and I'm starting with the insurrection because this, because this is basically proven the thesis of this book that I've been working on all along. And that's what's continued to happen since January 6th is that as events unfold, they just make this story that I'm telling here all the more pertinent and, and history just keeps kind of converging with it. I could have kept writing, I think, you know, I mean, the, the, the January 6th hearings that are happening right now are completely mm. relevant to what's happening in, in the book as well. So basically what I argue, as you know, is that because as we all watched in shock as that happened, that insurrection, many people found it bewildering as well. I was shocked, but I didn't find it bewildering at all. And as I found myself explaining to, you know, family and friends and to audiences and, and you know, talk shows and radio and whatever, it became clear and clear to me that people didn't understand the deep history that explained it. And that this story that I had started to tell from a slightly different angle was actually the deep history that explained it. And so I then sort of said, well, that's actually where, that's where we start. That's, that's where this history hit. Uh, it's, where, it's where it hit the fan. <laughs> you, you <know>? History <laughs> hit the fan. I think that's exactly what we're living through at the moment. Yeah. And it's been really interesting sharing this on Twitter and enthusing about it as, as Matt and I have been. Somebody said to me, oh, I don't know much about this part of American history. And it, it was an American who, who'd said this. And, and I pointed out that it this is your history now. Where you open this book, it's completely familiar because we've all watched it. We're, yeah. we're there. We're living through it. Exactly. And the fact that Americans don't know that history is part of the story that I'm telling here is how that history was suppressed, how actively and deliberately it was suppressed by a campaign of disinformation that has lasted for 160 years. I knew a lot of this when I started the project, but I didn't know all of it. And I uncovered stuff as I was researching it, as researchers always do. And as you said at the top, I'm a professor of American literature by training, not a historian by training. I wasn't, I didn't study the Civil War era. I'm not a researcher into the Civil War era into slavery um, or into reconstruction. So I'm very much relying on the scholarship of others and, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of great historians whose work I'm drawing on here to understand it all. But it's because there was so much active suppression, including by professional historians for many, many decades, which is part of the story that has to be told here. But so like but most Americans don't know this. That's partly why I wrote the book. I mean, it's not, it's not only for people outside of the United States. It's not as if people in the U.S. are all completely familiar with this. And it's just something that, that other don't know. I talk to people like yourselves, to British historians, professional historians in Britain who say, how did I not know this? I've trained in history. And how did I not know that this stuff was going on? And it's because of this very, very active suppression of the truth of our past. But one of the things that I say in the book, and it's really kind of one of the, the thesis arguments of the book, is that 
the, the problem with suppressing your past is that the, the past has consequences in the present, regardless of whether you know what happened in it. And it just gets more and more bewildering if you don't know what happened in it. But as soon as you know what happened in it, then you kind of go, okay, well, this is horrifying, but at least it's intelligible now. And I can understand how a country that claims to be like the United States could end up with what happened on January 6th. And that's really kind of the project of the book. We've both been very fortunate to, to read it. We we read it very quickly because you get into this sort of cross mindset of you start pulling threads from the, the story we know of, of the film, the book Gone with the Wind, and you start seeing how deep that goes. And it's almost like pulling the string from the middle of a thread and it coming together from both ends. And it's it's utterly fascinating. But to delve into this, if we use, as you do, God with the Wind is our, our framing here, what's your first memory of Margaret Mitchell's book, Selznick's film? H- how did you come to it in back in the day? So I'm pretty sure that I saw Gone with the Wind the year it premiered on free network television in the United States, which was 1977. I was very small. I won't say how small, but I was small. Um, (laughs) Alive, but young. And and my mother loved old movies. She was the one who got me into old movies. And so I'm quite sure that she will have parked me in front of Gone with the Wind as a small child in 1977. I absolutely remember, but it might have been 1978, but it premiered in 1977. So I expect that that's what she did. And she will have been excited for it too. And although I haven't checked in with her, but I'm sure that's true. Um, <laughs> and then it, you know, it kind of aired probably annually or whatever. I mean, a little bit erratically, but it was, you know, it was on. And so it was, but it was only on kind of once a year. So it was a sort of a bit like, you know, the great escape at Christmas in Britain or something. It was just, you know, it became a bit of a fixture of my childhood and it would kind of be this annual run. And by the time I was nine or 10, I was completely obsessed with it. I played with Barbie dolls. I was such a girly girl. I loved all of that stuff. And so I had, I mean, I had Barbie dolls that I like, I found these remnants of fabrics and I was never handy or crafty or anything, but I was literally like wrapping them in tapestries to make it look like hoop skirts and, you know, and acting out Gone with the Wind stuff when I was like nine or something, you know? And, and so I loved it. And I got very, very, uh, for a while, I, I remember, you know, when your child time stretches so long, right? So it was probably a week, but it felt like years because I was, you know, nine or whatever. And, um, but like night after night, I would fall asleep replaying Rhett leaving Scarlet over and over and over again. Now I'm a child of divorce. So, you know, in retrospect, I think I was probably triggered <laughs> you know, and I didn't understand any of that. But so my point is, is that it really, it had a huge imprint emotionally on me and i have really really clear memories of all you know all so many of the scenes so it just it became part of my imaginative world from a very young age it's always been there i don't remember really a pre gone with the wind i don't have a pre gone with the wind head <laughs> so let's, let's let's turn that around because i want to ask this one charlie sorry go on then when did you read the book but and then when did you start seeing the other nuances of the tale, which we'll get into with the lost cause fiction. Yeah. So I read the book as a young teenager. I mean, 14, something like that. A little bit late because I held off. It looked, even though I liked it, it still looked really long. (laughs) Even as a reader, you know, even as a teenage reader, I was like, oh, that's a lot of pages. Um, But eventually I got into it and I did like it. I enjoyed it. I was certainly old enough by then to recognize that it is very, very racist. And even as a white girl in the suburbs of Chicago, in the early 1980s, it was racist enough that even for somebody like me, I was like, 
huh, I feel like this is kind of racist. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is an indicate because I was not necessarily sensitive to that issue. So um, it's an indication of how very, very racist it was. Um, is, uh, I should say. But not enough that it, because I wasn't sensitized to those issues, not enough that it necessarily put me off of it. I just thought I could compartmentalize that and park it and be like, well, that's unfortunate, but here are all the things I like about it. But I never liked it as much as the film because Margaret Mitchell is very clear about how limited Scarlett O'Hara is. She's very much an anti-heroine in the book, much more than she is in the film. And the film lets her be much more of a heroine that you can identify with, problematic, but human, but fundamentally kind of admirable. And the only thing that she doesn't get right in the film is that she doesn't know that she loves Rhett, which is a very kind of standard romance trope so but in the book she's really objectionable in lots of ways like she's mean to her kids and she doesn't really care about them very much and she's she's horrible to melanie i mean way worse than in the movie uh, yeah than in the movie all this stuff anyway so she's just kind of an awful person i was too young to appreciate an anti-hero and that's actually now one of the things i like about the book because i think it's one of the more interesting things that margaret mitchell did with it anyway and then i just kind of put it to one side and i kept watching the movie but i never thought about it i didn't really think about the movie. and then when i was a graduate student in in literature, I started teaching American bestsellers. And so I went back to it then. And then I was, te- I was teaching it and I was thinking about it in a very different way. And since then, which was, you know, kind of my early 20s. Uh, so I've had, you know, kind of several decades of, of working with it and teaching it and then thinking about it in a different way. So when all of the political turmoil in the US began, you know, not even really with the election of Trump, I would say with the backlash against the election of Obama during Obama's administration as the you know, virulent racism was just rising and rising and rising. It became, it's been something I've been noodling for a while that Gone with the Wind was a text to revisit and that it had a lot to teach me and us about the way that the United States was shocking all of us over and over and over again. And then Trump happened. And then I was like, oh, okay, I actually have to write this book. <laughs> So as someone who has spent so much time with the source material, for, for people who, who may be familiar with the film, mm. who is Margaret Mitchell and how did she help to codify this concept of the lost cause? Yeah. So Margaret Mitchell was a woman from Atlanta. She was born in 1900 and she died in 1949. So very much kind of like bookmarking the first half of the 20th century. And she was the granddaughter of slaveholders, um, enslavers. And um, her grandmother lived through the burning of Atlanta, the legendary Sherman's March through Atlanta to the sea, which Gone with the Wind depicts. And is a, a kind of, it's like the London Blitz, right? It's a historical event that has been highly mythologized in American culture and that people who lived through it told stories about and all of that. So Margaret Mitchell grew up listening to these stories from her grandmother where her grandmother pointed out the path of Sherman's army to the sea and all of this stuff. And her grandmother was bitterly resentful for the rest of her life that the people that she the people that she saw as her property, the black people that her family had enslaved, and the land that they owned had been from her point of view stolen by the Yankees. And that was the worldview that Margaret Mitchell grew up in. The idea that the Yankees were northern aggressors, that they came into this absolutely fabulous world for, uh, mm-hmm. on on the slimmest of pretexts in order just to basically steal everything from everybody and because they were just money grubbing and they kind of willfully wrecked everything. And then her grandmother spent the rest of her life determined to reacquire land. She was quite rapacious and actually, (laughs) and that's what a lot of white Southerners did was as soon as they could, they just started grabbing land. And that was how Margaret Mitchell was raised. And she grew up at a time in 1900 when as 
Jim Crow was embedding. So, you know, historical markers in the timeline for, for listeners. Remember that the infamous Plessy v. Ferguson decision, which said that separate was equal, the Supreme Court passed down. One of the more infamous decisions in Supreme Court history, but possibly just surpassed or, or equaled. <laughs> um, um, by the, I mean, they're basically, we've now got Dred Scott, Plessy v. Ferguson and Dodds. And, and that's, you know, kind of where we are. Anyway, so, but that was one of the great infamous cases, which was the one that famously held that separate could be equal and therefore made segre- racial segregation apartheid legal in the United States. That was passed in 1896, four years before Margaret Mitchell was born. And then in the early decades of the 20th century, as black people really started to push for civil rights and as they really started to claim their civil rights and to push back against Jim Crow, the white South responded by embedding this sentimentalized, glorified version of the old South, which got known as the Lost Cause. And that was when they started putting up the Confederate monuments. Most of those didn't go up in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. They went up in in the late 19th century, early decades of the 20th century. And so Margaret Mitchell was growing up as that white supremacist post hoc justification was being made. And the argument was being made that the Civil War was a war of aggression by the North and that the South had never really done anything wrong anyway and that slavery had been fine and that Black people welcomed it and frankly, they deserved it. And that was her worldview. But so she was also reading very romantic fiction that famous kind of plantation fiction where you had noble white knights and fair ladies and and this very, very caricatured kind of sub-Walter Scott stuff that had been transplanted into the South, kind of Ivanhoe meets the Old South. And she did recognize that that was very unrealistic and sentimental. So when she she became a journalist, she was very hard-headed in a lot of ways. She just was misinformed and uh, deeply, deeply misinformed about American history. And when she sat down to write Gone with the Wind, her idea was that she was going to write a more realistic version. She wanted to tell the truthful version of the Old South. The problem was that the only the only accounts that she went to were the ones who justified slavery, and she thought that was the truth. So she has realistic characters in that Rhett and Scarlet are scoundrels, and they're not, as I said, she's an anti-heroine, they're not nice people. So it's much more modern in that respect, in that she doesn't have these sentimental Victorian heroines who faint and everything. But they're against a backdrop of deeply dishonest Victorian ideas, Victorian-generated ideas about white supremacism, about Anglo-Saxon uh, um, civilization, about justifications for slavery, and eugenicist justifications for slavery. And that was kind of, as I say, that was her worldview. Mitchell doesn't hold back in her terminology, their use of language when it comes mm. to, to slavery here. The use of, say, um, someone is a slave as opposed to enslaved. I thought the, the way you you framed right. that structure. Right. So the, the use gotcha. of enslaver and enslaved versus slave owner and yeah. slave, I think yeah. is very okay. fascinating on how you looked at that versus how, say, Mitchell would have seen it. In itself. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Exactly. So I was trying very hard in this, in writing this book, because what I was doing was challenging and lambasting um, in many places my fellow white compatriots for insufficiently listening, insufficiently using their common sense, frankly, about other human beings. But particularly now when the argument about language and how people choose to identify themselves and the understanding of how language is oppressive is at such a heightened state, and I think rightly so, it's made people very, very aware 
I was very conscious that as a white woman writing about these issues, and particularly somebody who's not trained as a historian of slavery, as I say, that I needed to be not just very careful, but very explicit about why I was making the choices that I was making so that even if people disagreed with me, they could understand where I came from and that it was at least a considered position and that I had tried to think through all of the issues as clearly as I could and read a lot about it. I read a lot of debates. There are lots of people, I mean, there are lots of black scholars who are publishing right now about their anger and how traumatizing they find it when white scholars say that they can just print the N-word in full because it appears in historical documentation. And they say, you don't understand how traumatizing it is to encounter that word, even in scholarly texts. And I thought, well, I have to listen to that. Like I have, They're telling me that that's the case. And also then I realized that if I, if I tried to argue that position of like, well, it appears in the historical documentation. So I'm just going to quote it where it appears in the historical documentation. And obviously I won't use it in my own language because I would never use that word myself. But then I thought, well, actually, that, Sarah, that just puts you back in the position of Margaret Mitchell because Margaret Mitchell vehemently defended her right to use that word in the name of historical accuracy, which is in a sense what I would be doing. So I thought, well, you know, when in doubt, don't do what Margaret Mitchell did. That's one of my rules of thumb <laughs> in life, except write a bestseller that sells like the most copies of all time. I'd be okay with that. Inspiring the most successful film of all time. I'd be okay with those two choices. The rest of her choices, I'd prefer not to, um, not to emulate. So, and then once you start thinking about that, you realize you have to rethink a lot of the language. And that, and again, these are things that people are writing about a lot. I, I didn't, I didn't come up with any of these. I was just reading and trying to pay attention. But I think increasingly people are saying that enslaved and enslaver is a much more accurate way of expressing the power dynamics at work mm-hmm. and making clear in a pissy way. I don't think it makes it less elegant. You know, you're not suddenly adding like you know cumbersome phrases. But it used to be slave owner, then it turned to slaveholder because that was more that made clear that there was a seizure in there, where a slave owner would imply that a human being could be owned. And to never use that word is to deny the premise of the ownership of human beings. So then there was slaveholder, which said, okay, they've been seized, but they've been held. But then looking back at it, it turns out that that Mitchell used that phrase slaveholder. And so I went back to my rule of thumb that if Mitchell thought it was okay, I probably don't. And then looking at the scholars saying, actually, enslaved and enslaver gets the job done. And when you think, and as a professor of literature, thinking about how words work, I was like, yeah, those are actually the words I want to use because they are enslaved and they are enslaving. So there are a few places where that, where that structure really doesn't work in a given sentence or whatever. And so I occasionally mixed it up. But for the most part, that's the formula that I tried to use. And then I tried to render the quotations as accurately as possible. So when Mitchell says slaveholder, I use slaveholder or slave owner. If it's in a quotation, I use that. I also, although I didn't print the N-word as it appears, I didn't redact it as the N-word because, as I explained in the book, in the 1930s, when Gone with the Wind came out, they were already using that phrase, the N-word, and Black people were already objecting to the use of that racist slur in the novel and in the film. And there was a whole campaign to stop it from being used in the film. So I thought it would actually just confuse everybody hopelessly if I substituted in the debates the same word. That, so I just thought, no, what you've got to do is actually come up with a different usage that without replicating that word that people simply don't want to see will make clear that that was the word that was being used. So I came up with a formula that obliterated the middle letters instead of with dashes, as we often see, we'll see N blank dash R. I put in the X's so that you could see the number of letters so that you can see. And for me, it registers more like the word without actually putting that highly offensive word in the text. So that was how I tried to navigate it. But, you know, I mean, it really is going to be up to readers how they 
feel about it. And it may be that people think it's an inadequate solution. It, it may be that people still find it offensive. I hope not, of course. I tried very hard to come up with something that I thought wouldn't be offensive. And I, I should say also, I didn't just make all these decisions by myself. I did, um, as I say in the book, I did, I did consult with not just with readers of color, but with African-American readers quite specifically because it's such a specific history. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Of course. I mean, in terms of of the history, we are talking about a very brief amount of time between the end of the Civil War and the publication of Gone with the Wind. So, Well, it's 70 years. It's, it's not that brief. <laughs> well, uh, in historian terms, it's a That's a living memory, 70 years. <laughs> so for, for those who don't know the history of this period, what was the Reconstruction? And what did the defeated South do in this time to try and get some authority back over all and, these and, free And people? let's just make it completely clear, they totally lost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, wait, in 10 words or less? Okay. So what happened was, yeah, the South lost the war. And the, the measure of that loss of the war was that against their will, against the will of the white South, of course, black slaves were emancipated. They were emancipated during the war. And then there was the 13th Amendment at the end of the war, which legislated that and abolished slavery in the United States. And then the 14th and 15th Amendments, which gave birthright, citizenship rights, equality under the law, that was really the first civil rights amendments. So they prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude so that you couldn't not have rights or, as it happened, then the franchise because you were a former slave. But those were the three stipulations. Then the 15th Amendment gave black men the franchise, and it was very explicitly just to men and not to black women. And it's the first time in the Constitution that women were explicitly excluded from it. And this matters because what happened then in Reconstruction was that the White South realized very quickly that those three things, race, color, and previous condition of servitude, were a drop in the ocean of all of the other reasons you could discriminate against somebody. And so they simply started passing laws and creating structures that would enable them to discriminate against Black people by proxy. And they just didn't say it was because of race. And so they created what we would now describe as voter suppression, although it was much more violent than just what... So the first way you suppress voters is by killing them which they did in cold blood all of the time. They killed Black legislators. They killed Black political candidates, Black political activists. But they also just killed ordinary citizens who were trying to vote. They absolutely flatly rejected any suggestion that Black Americans could enter the country as equal citizens with them. So there's murder, but then, of course, there's also extreme violence. There is torture as an act of intimidation, as an act of terror. And it was described as a campaign of terrorism. There was no 
question at that point that white people could be terrorists. Nobody, nobody doubted that. It was the white people who were the terrorists in this environment, certainly not the blacks. And they also began this disinformation campaign to suggest that everything was fine and everything was great. And it was the black people who were causing all the problems. And if there were violence, it was because black people were lawless and they should never have been liberated from slavery anyway. Meanwhile, they're like literally killing, you know, they're killing black people in cold blood and then going, well, you know, he deserved it because he was uppity or whatever they would say. But of course, what what really happened was that he opened a shop that competed with them, or he more likely was getting in line to try to exercise his vote. And one of the things that I go into in the book that has, is, again, one of the things that has really shocked even professional historians. I'd be interested to know what you guys thought about it. But I go into a lot of really, there's physical horror in this book. There is real brutality. And I and I pull it up from firsthand documents. So the language comes from the original documents, but it is absolutely brutal, you know, barbaric and shocking. And I felt that it needed to be in there because we start telling these stories and we say, oh, well, you know, white people were there was racial violence. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means in firsthand testimony. Here's what the savagery that we are talking about. And it is horrifying that I think you need that. You need the savagery to understand why we are where we are and the rage and the, and the dysfunction of it all and how very unprepared the white South was to accept this shift in, in power structures and, and, the, and the destruction of their racial hierarchy. And the positive spin on this, which... There isn't much of one, but the one that I that I like, and we are recording this on the 4th of July, so I will say this because it's one of the few things that can be said in defense of my country in telling this horrible story about what happened in the aftermath of the Civil War, is it's actually an amazing, audacious thing to attempt to do, to go from a race-based slavery to full multiracial democracy in the space of five years. Like there's a part of me that's like rock on America, like totally insane, but good for you. You know, at least we tried doomed to failure, totally doomed to utter failure. Right? But at least we tried, but we didn't try for very long. And then what happened was the white South gained more and more of uh, the political upper hand locally in local elections by suppressing the black vote, but also because the feeling was so strong. And that meant that they, that even after the civil war, we were still in a very, very polarized political environment, much as we are today. And eventually what happened was there was the contested election of 1876. So after 10 years of, of violence and chaos, there was a contested election and it ended in a compromise where the South agreed to let the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes become president for, in exchange for the withdrawal of federal troops from the South. And those federal troops were the only thing that was keeping Reconstruction in place. They were the only thing that was keeping white Southerners from absolutely reimposing racial hierarchies in every way that they could and basically recreating slavery in all but name. And that's what they proceeded to do for the next 20 years. That's when Jim Crow was built. And basically, they rebuilt, recreated all of the conditions of slavery. So that's when the carceral state was built. And that's when it began to be overwhelmingly populated by a Black population, particularly male, because again, Black men could vote. It was when postbellum felony disenfranchisement laws were passed. So if you had been convicted of a crime, you were then not allowed to vote. So that's a good way of of stopping people from voting. The other ways that they did it were that was when the infamous grandfather clause was created and because they said you couldn't be denied the vote if for previous condition of servitude, but that was only you. So they said you can only vote if your grandfather voted. 
And if your grandfather didn't vote, you're, you're denied the vote, right? And that's the grandfather clause. So they passed poll taxes, so you couldn't, you had to pay. They passed literacy tests and then denied people public education. So they did everything that they could to say that you won't be able to vote. And then they created systems of debt peonage. They created the sharecropping system. So you have 4 million Black people were emancipated at the stroke of a pen. And then the United States washed their hands of them. They didn't give them land. They didn't give them jobs. They didn't give them an education. They didn't give them any kind of skills training. They didn't give them any kind of money, any kind of access to anything. So many of them ended up trapped back on the plantations that they had supposedly been emancipated from because they literally couldn't even afford to travel and they were completely unskilled. And so they end up working the same farms that they had worked as enslaved people. They end up working as so-called sharecroppers. And all of that got um, institutionalized over the course of the next several decades, and eventually that became Jim Crow segregation. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's an incredibly vicious and vicious with a capital V cycle, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's this thing. Dear, dear listener, there's whole sections about the clan. The linking cult, lynching culture section of the book had me in a rage on the train, so much so that mm. I think the person sitting across from me got up and left. <laughs> um, and it's it's well worth as well, you know, the looking at the stories of, of, of the people you mentioned just to, to remember how human they were before – it wasn't their death that was it because it you don't hold back sarah and i think that's to your credit but let's spin this back to mitchell to a certain gentleman called david selznick who we we love and shake our fists at in any <laughs> measure yeah you said it a little while ago it was the biggest book ever mm-hmm. what was that reaction like to this this fiction of the South, and then how did the race to turn it into a film begin? So Gone with the Wind was this you know, absolutely immense overnight success. Sometimes people are skeptical about those stories and they think it was manufactured in some way. This is an absolutely genuine, like it was just a runaway success. Everybody loved it. Everybody was reading it. It was just a phenomenon. And it was obviously therefore telling white Americans something that they wanted to hear in 1936. So it was, remember, it's the middle of the depression. And this is something I, I go into in the book there is that what what is it that white, that white Americans would have found so appealing about this kind of story? And of course, the, the heart of the story, the emotional core of the story is that it's about Scarlett O'Hara's survivalism. It's about her resilience and her defiance and her determination that she will overcome. 
And so in that sense, and as I say, it's a kind of Cinderella story, actually, because she starts out high status. Everybody thinks Cinderella starts out low status, but you're forgetting she had a rich father and her stepmother comes in and makes her a servant. It's very important. Anyway, so it's a very classic Cinderella story. She starts out high status. She ends up low, like, you know, quote unquote, in the ashes and having to act as a servant. And it's all about her determination to restore her status. But the modern aspect of the tale is that Mitchell won't let her have her prince at the end, which is a which is a modern twist on it and makes it a more grown up story than even in its in its romance than people might expect. But so basically, in that sense, it's an American success story. She's a rags to riches story. She bootstraps her way back to success. And what's really important here, I will say, as a woman speaking to fifty percent of interviewers here who are women. Um, <laughs> Is it's incredibly important that she's the first American every woman. She's the first heroine that there's evidence that readers cross the gender line in identifying with her as a human being. She became a universal character regardless of the fact that she was female. And as any woman will tell you, especially any woman who studies narrative, that's incredibly rare. So Scarlett does have a kind of special place in popular culture, global popular culture for that reason. Very few women have ever achieved that kind of identification across cultures, across politics, across generations. So there's something very human and very identifiable, very relatable at the heart of Scarlet that everybody, you know, connects to. So that's why it worked, I think. And then this this pastoral image of a, of a golden age of America where everything used to be rural and beautiful, um, as any good nostalgic golden age tale will do, gave you this escapism and this sense of your own heroic past that you could recover, that, you know, today might be sorted, but once we were beautiful. And so there's all of that too. And so it hit Massive success. David Selznick, who of course was incredibly successful, important producer, was just starting his own studio, as a matter of fact, but was working with MGM. And he snapped up the rights to the book and being a very, very canny publicist, instantly announced that he was going to have the search for Scarlet, who would play his Scarlet O'Hara. And it's the kind of prototypical um it's the first version of that, of like American Idol and all of that yeah. stuff. Um, you know, Pop Idol owes that, you know, the search for the star basically owes it all to, to Selznick's search for Scarlet. And of course, British listeners will like to be reminded that the actress he eventually found was Vivian Lee, um, who had only made Fire Over England with Laurence Olivier at that point. So she was by no means a star. And of course, this was her great star um, vehicle. And she played opposite Leslie Howard as Ashley Wilkes, another British actor, Leslie Howard, born Leslie Howard Steiner, Jewish British man from Upper Norwood, London, who would be killed fighting the Nazis. So the story of the making of the film instantly became a story and everybody was so excited for it. There was a Gallup poll when the movie was about to be released at the end of 1939. And it was something like, I, I, the numbers in the book, I don't remember off the top of my head, but something like 50% of all Americans were planning to go see this movie. I mean, so that would be the equivalent of you know 150 million people right now saying we are going to see this movie tomorrow night when it opens. And it was just, it was an absolute smash phenomenon. There had never been so successful a movie. It remains, when adjusted for inflation, still the most successful movie of all time, more successful than Avatar, more successful than Titanic, more successful than, you know, than the Harry Potter movies, anything. And then, you know, they became these kind of symbolic archetypes, because when something is that popular, then it becomes a lingua franca. Everybody understands who they are. Everybody's sharing the stories. But the problem is they were making it, and this is something I go into, um, it kind of drives my story about the making of the film, is that all of that is very romantic and very appealing if you're white. 
If you're Black, it's considerably less appealing. And this was during, of course, the rise of fascism in Europe. American watchers were much more aware of that than non-Americans today might realize. Uh, We were maybe an isolationist country, but not unaware of what was going on. And the rise of fascism was as worrying in the US as it was in Europe, and people were very aware of it. And Selznick was first-generation Jewish son of immigrants from what is now Lithuania, and he was very conscious of it. Of course he was. And so he was he was trying in that kind of almost like, you know, the way that an inept liberal might today, like try to not be racist, but then they keep slipping up and sort of getting it wrong. But you know, his intentions were okay, but he really wasn't listening. And so as African-Americans kept trying to say to him, but this isn't okay, he'd be like, well, I don't want to do anything wrong, but I'm totally not going to listen to you and I'm going to go do what I want to do. You know, and it was, it was sort of like that. So he could see the connections between anti-Black racism and um, anti-Semitic fascism, but not enough to make him fundamentally rethink the project. And so he just kept trying to find like workarounds, basically. And so what happened was the Black cast, particularly led by Hattie McDaniel, who would become, of course, the first African-American actor to win an Oscar for her performance in Gone with the Wind, playing Scarlett's Mammy. She led a campaign also with Butterfly McQueen, who played the slave Prissy, and they lobbied Selznick to remove the N-word from the script because he was going to have it in. And there were a number of very prominent Black writers, journalists at the time, who also lobbied for it, campaigned, called for boycotts if he kept that word in the hate word. They called it the hate word then. And so there was also controversy around it. And there were people, mostly Black people, but not exclusively Black people, who recognized the parallels between the story that Gone with the Wind was telling and the rise of European fascism abroad. And that's kind of the culmination of my story is that there were also white Americans, some, they weren't in the majority, but there were some who could see what the parallels looked like and why it was so problematic. And then the film, you know, they finished filming as war was declared in Europe. And it was, and it was released in the early months of 1940 during the phony war, and then started to make its way actually, you know, through war-torn Europe. It was it was playing in Leicester Square during the Blitz. So there were reports that people were queuing up as fires were being put out, you know, in Leicester Square. And they were queuing up with the, the, with the water brigade on one hand, and they're waiting for their screening of Gone with the Wind, because it's a story about resilience. It's a story about surviving war. It's a story about surviving assault and occupation. It's just the problem is that nobody paused to think about the fact that Gone with the Wind is about the bad guys. So I always, some people will know the fa- there's a, if you're on social media, also people will know there's a very famous gif of David Mitchell from the Mitchell and Webb show where he's wearing a Nazi uniform and he's looking puzzled and going, are we the baddies? <laughs> and, um, and we were, we were joking about this on, on Twitter when we were talking about this before, but that's basically, you know, what my book boils down to is, is people during the second world war kind of not realizing that this is a story about the baddies. Yeah. Well, this was the most popular film during the Blitz. I mean, people would, would watch it and they'd play it again and they'd just stay in their seats. And I mean, presumably the house had just collapsed. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's warmer and drier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's a real credit to what Selznick did and perhaps not so much him as Sidney Howard, the first writer and his first treatment on the book to how do we make this thing into an acceptable film. And in the treatment, he says straight away that this this has got problems. So what we're going to do <laughs> we is we're going to make the whole thing about Scarlett. It's just going to be her story. And so, yeah, it becomes this story of resilience. But I can't help but wonder if it had been filmed as 
written if it would have had the the enduring popularity that it's had because it would have been completely unacceptable very quickly. They knew that that language was unacceptable in 1938, 1939. Mm. It would certainly not be being shown on network television in the late 70s yeah. with that kind of language. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Matt, you were saying on, again, we were saying this up, you, you live tweeted your viewing of the <laughs> film and, and you had this, this great line that your grandfather told you, which I shouldn't say, you should say, because I thought it was wonderful and it's exactly right. You've caught, you've caught me on the hop now. Don't watch what they say, listen to what they say. And yeah. he was absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was don't listen to what they say, but watch what they do or something like that. Something like that. Anyway. Yeah, but that's basically, it, ba- basic, it, right? basically, don't don't get taken in by what you're seeing. Don't be glamoured. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Don't fall for it, right? Yeah. And watch and watch critically and, and think for yourself. And as soon as you start doing that, you think, hang on a second. Wait a moment. <laughs> These people are talking about human slavery. <laughs> You know, and as soon as you start doing that, the whole thing falls apart. But I think that, I mean, the story, as you say, you suddenly realize how totally objectionable it is. And, but the thing is, is that it's still, at least for those of us who grew up with it, it's still a very effective piece of filmmaking. And for those who, who grew up with classic Hollywood cinema, it is still the kind of the apex of that art. And, and I think that a lot of what they did, and I mean, you, you talk about the brilliance of Howard's treatment. I totally agree. Took a thousand thirty-six page novel and boiled it down to its essence without actually changing anything. He did just get it to its core. And it's, a, I mean, if anybody wants to learn how to adapt a novel into a screenplay, man, read that novel and then read Howard's treatment. It's extraordinary. But it is technically a masterpiece in all kinds of ways. I mean, I think the burning of Atlanta still holds up because they burned all of the Culver City backlot. So there's no, they're not doing any kind of rear screening, you know, rear screen projection. So there's none of that kind of awkward fakery that today, those special effects that don't hold up anymore with CGI, you know, in our minds. But it's like, no, because they really were running through a burning city. <laughs> so yeah. it holds up. And also I think the performances, that's the other thing that makes the, the film stand up. The central performances, I think Vivian Lee is a powerhouse in it. Matt, earlier you were saying that you you come down on the side of, of Olivia de Havilland playing Melanie. Again, another amazing performance. Team, team Olivia the whole way. Fair enough. You would um, be a Melly fan. I mean, she's so insipid, but Olivia <laughs> does. I mean, gotta love Olivia and she does pull it off and she makes she makes the insipid interesting which is very very difficult to do as a performer and she does give that range and depth Clark Gable his absolute definitive performance which of course he was very anxious about he had to show emotion which he wasn't used to doing he had to cry in one scene he didn't think he could do that I mean you know that Margaret Mitchell had Clark Gable in mind when she wrote the when she wrote the character of Rhett Butler Clark Gable was already a star and in a very real she never admitted it but you he's just there everybody knew it was Clark Gable it kind of had to be Clark Gable and the chemistry between Clark Gable and Vivian Lee on screen on screen I think is very very real and so I and 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 the wittiness of their exchanges and it's a real battle of the sexes that I think, again, you know, really holds up. So I think there's still lots of things that are enjoyable about the film if we can parse it out. But the problem is, and this is kind of the problem that I get to again and again in the book, is should we parse it out? Is what happens? We're encouraged to parse it out. We're encouraged to put the racism to one side and to talk about all the other things that we like. And I'm saying, you know, it's a package deal. And the appeal and the glamour and all of this stuff was literally purchased at the expense of the romanticization of ins- of human enslavement and are we okay with that so i still have a soft spot for the film i can't lie i sat and watched that- it i you know 
dutifully after reading the book and thinking, am I, am I going to see something different? And what shocked me was that there was nothing problematic that I hadn't seen before because, you know, I, I first watched it in the mid nineties. So it was already, you know, yeah, you were I'm aware. Used to, I'm used to classic movies. I'm used to sort of watching them and going, Oh, you can't, you can't yeah, say ooh. that. <laughs> Bit dodgy. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so I was used to the problematic side of it. But what shocked me was that I, I still cried like a little baby at the end. Absolutely fell for it, hook, line and sinker. Yeah. Completely. It's a very effective piece of manipulation. <laughs> that's, but at the same time, I know it's not history. It's not real. Yeah. Well, that's it's, the thing, right? Sorry, it's, go it's, ahead, it's, it's the language of film throughout it. And I think it was the bits in between the big set pieces that I was watching closely, the, the, you know, the, the use of rainbows and, and all these very filmic devices to show and i think that's since watching it last week that's the thing that stuck to me that shot of the rainbow above the burnt mm. the burnt plantations this sort of you know don't worry they're coming and you know th- this idea of rebuilding time that i think upset me more this watch through that because yeah. i just thought i know what you're doing yeah. and you know that it's those little things that sit in the back of your head and, and fester away I mean, the, the analogy that I draw in the book more than once, and I do it because it's historically, uh, it's contemporaneous, and it seems to me that morally it's completely fair, is I, more than once, as you know, I draw the comparison with Nazis and with concentration camps, because it is, <laughs> it's very, very equivalent. And this is, and so I agree with you, so, so, to, so to get people to think about why we're saying that the rainbow shot is upsetting, so imagine a film about the destruction of Nazi Germany, the the burning of Dachau and Auschwitz, and then a rainbow rising above them to suggest that Nazi Germany shall rise again, because that's the politics of it. And there's no getting away from it. And people get really mad when I point this out and they accuse me of being like a tin hat conspiracy theorist, whatever. And it's just like, think about it, guys, just think about it for a second and you'll realize that it's true. And so that's why the rainbow shot is so objectionable because it's suggesting that the white supremacist South will rise again and that that's hopeful and, and we'll all be happy then. It's, yeah, it's, it's making me cross again. <laughs> the title cards as well, I think, are one thing that always really shocks me about that film because it, it sets out its stall very clearly that it was a time of cavaliers and their ladies fair that is now gone with the wind. And, you know, wasn't it so wonderful? Yeah. Well, it's worth, it's worth pointing out here. And this is, I think really important because it's easy for the, and particularly I come from Chicago, right? It's easy for this to sound like it's a white Northern American bashing the South. That's not what this story is. And I try really hard in the book and I hope it comes across to make clear that this is a story about what white Americans came together and did. This is not a story about what the white, the white South started it. And then the North more than met them halfway and white Northerners were completely happy to absorb this story. And those title cards that you talk about were of course written by Ben Hecht, who was one of the other screenwriters who was brought in later. And he was a hard bitten newspaper man from Chicago. He wrote the front page, one of the bitterest satires ever written. <laughs> and then he comes in and peddles this cheap mythology. And A, he was getting paid for it, so it's cynical. And he was cynical, if nothing else. So I yeah, mean, he's yeah. just taking the money and running. But also, it's worth pointing out here that 
that one of the sources that Mitchell drew on for her history, her very inaccurate history, was the most popular history of the South at the time, which was called The Tragic Era, the history of reconstruction that was written by Claude Bowers in 1929. And it was it's now totally forgotten and deservedly so. Don't dig it up and rediscover it. It's almost unreadable. But I read it because that's part of the homework. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is, so it's a 1929 bestseller that purports to be a very accurate, you know, historical nonfiction, um, reliable telling of the story of Reconstruction in the South. And Claude Bowers was from Indiana. And you will never read a more racist book than The Tragic Era. I mean, it makes Gone with the Wind look even handed. And it's just extraordinary, right? And, you know, Indiana and you know, Indiana and Illinois are next to each other, right? So this is why I bring them together. So you've got Ben Hecht perfectly happy to peddle this idea that carpetbaggers are the bad guys. And carpetbaggers were school teachers. They, they were school teachers coming down to teach Black, to set up free public schools for Black children. And they were, you know, abolitionists and Republicans coming down to support. Um, now, some of them were exploiting. Some of them, well, of course, there are always opportunists after wars. But a lot of them were actually coming down to try to build up the infrastructure and, and to create the conditions for Black equality. And you have people like Ben Hecht and Claude Bowers from the Midwest in the late 1920s, early 1930s, completely absorbing this, unquestioningly accepting it, and very, very happy to say that the North are the bad guys in the story of the Civil War, which is extraordinary when you pause and think about it. So that's why I made everybody pause. And, that's why I wrote 350 pages, <laughs> make everybody pause and think about it. <laughs> Let's pause and think about this, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> to be to be fair, in reading your book, there was plenty of times when because I had I had a I had a galley of it on my phone. You just put, you put it down, and you have to stop and think because there's a lot of decompression of ideas that you you need to make as you, as you go through it. And we're just going to have to say to people, please go buy this when it eventually arrives in in hardback form, as well as ebook, which is out tomorrow. There's a whole other story there which we won't get into just yet. Um, check my twitter feed and it will all be great. yes it, it it's good it's a good story but we're running out of time so we're going to start to wrap up but sarah it's it's been a delight to talk to you and thank you so much for letting us read the book early because charlie and i have been going back and forth mostly just angry one-liners at each other when we get to different bits of it it is absolutely incredible and it's um wonderfully timely and i i hope everybody gets to read it because it's it's very powerful and it's it's what we need right now i think thank you very much that's that is you know authors slog away for years by themselves trying to do something that they believe in and to hear something like that is i can't tell you how heartening that is so thank you very much indeed we won't ask you the what you're doing next question because you've just finished this one so i have no idea (laughs) you're gonna have a nap yes What I would like to do, though, is invite you back for Behold America, which is literally yeah. on the shelf waiting to be read. My good friend, Dr. Philip Blood, when he raves about a book, you know, it's it's a must read. And I have not got oh. to it yet. So I oh, will have to have you back for that as well. I would love to. I think they're very much companion pieces, actually. Mm. I mean, in many ways, this book is a follow up to it. And it's a kind of prehistory. But I've been I've been toying in my head with which one I think is better to read first, because in some ways it, it, but anyway, I, it'll be interesting to see what you think of it. And this is this will fill in a lot of the gaps of what happens at the end of this book. So the two together kind of tell a mm, tell definitely. what I think is a is a is a more complete story. So I'm so glad you have that teed up. And of course, I'll come back and talk about it. Wonderful. Right there we go. Everybody, 
The book is available on our very own History Hack bookshop when, you know, it, it's allowed to, to go you out can, there. You can, you can instantly pre-order. You can pre-order now. It's just a slight delay in delivery. Yes. And it's it, it'll be, it's worth the wait, people. Trust us. We we always put you right on this show. So, Sarah, thank you so much. Enjoy the lovely Tom Sutcliffe in front row, who's who you're dashing off to to see now. I am. And we can't thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.